Good day, everyone. Wherever you are and whatever time zone you're in, it's wonderful to be with you again. Let's begin with our, our sitting. And I will say uh, ahead of time that at the end of our sitting, um, let's begin with the four practice principles rather than the robe chant. We'll reverse them as we have classically done them. Um, so we'll begin with uh, uh, caught in the self-centered dream when we finish our sitting.
caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. good to be back with all of you today. And one of the reasons uh, I wanted to make sure that we chanted the four practice principles in the beginning today was because I wanted to um, focus a bit on those first two lines about caught in the self-centered dream and holding to self-centered thoughts. And also in some ways, to remind us, and this I think is a constant reminder, at least as I'm teaching, about what our practice is and what it is not, what it offers us and what it does not, and what in some ways is essential, um, its essential function is in a way. So our um, Zen practice, which Apamata's teachings and practices are deeply informed, our Zen practice, are grounded in Buddhist teachings. And they're not, not exactly the same, but they, they flow together and they come together over time. And this Zen practice grounded in Buddhist teachings invite us over and over to relinquish our ordinary way of meeting the world and that ordinary way that I mean is in which we, in some ways, attempt to protect ourselves from the reality of life. Most of what we do is um, a management function to handle things. We so often habitually and out of our awareness um, work to halt or redirect the flow of experience and make things permanent which are actually ever-changing. We cling, we, we get caught. And we attempt to divide the seamless, interdependent flow of reality, separating people and separating things in order to maintain some sense of personal control over the world. That's inevitably changing due to you know, causes and conditions that are way beyond what we can even see but yet we somehow think we can uh, control it. We take the fluidity of experience and make it into static beliefs. And we artificially segment time as if it were handed out in small sequential packets, um, not realizing there's this flow which expands and contracts in a certain plasticity. And we do whatever we can, of course, most of us, to forestall the realization of our own death and prevent the actuality of aging. And these are just a few. You probably have lists that are, that are longer about the way that essentially we don't move to that third line, each moment life as it is, the only teacher, but instead cling, hold. And really we're holding on for dear life um, because things are, are difficult and we have some idea that if we could just explain and predict and control, as Joanna Macy says, we could explain the world, have the concept of it, predict it, know what's gonna happen so we're not so frightened and control it. Uh, so we feel like we're at the center of it. If those things could happen, we'd be in good shape. And our practice thwarts every one of those for something actually larger, but first 
there's this loss or relinquishment, surrender. The, the wonderful um, writer of uh, science fiction and other uh, genres, Ursula Le Guin once said, to learn which questions are unanswerable and not to answer them. This skill is most needful in times of stress and darkness. To learn which questions are unanswerable. The way we form the questions, whether we put ourselves to the questions, sometimes they're not the appropriate questions and our practice helps us set them all down and sit in some silence and stillness and uprightness to make our way into questions that <clears throat> are worth our, um, our energy and worth betting our life on rather than the questions that we think are the ones that are gonna guide us. To learn which questions are unanswerable and to not to answer them, not to shape our life in response to these answers. This skill is most needful in times of stress and darkness. Because our practice really isn't um, to offer us like a new coping strategy and one that we call spiritual. Like we'll, we'll learn these spiritual techniques, we'll learn to meditate, or we'll read or study or do something and we'll become uh, better. Our personality will change, our capacities will, will grow as if we're improving ourselves in some way. That's not our practice. It also really doesn't offer consolation in the forms that at least our personality calls for, which is more like the longings of very vulnerable parts of ourselves that want to be consoled. Our practice does kind of thwart these efforts, but offers us something more, uh, something more broad, something deeper, something richer, something beyond comprehension, uh, unanswerable, and yet completely realizable and livable. And that's the kind of odd thing about this practice. There is a freedom we open to as we set aside our attempts to manage our suffering. And this freedom expresses itself as profound care and deep gratitude with patience and a kind of a, a vitality that isn't just about physical energy, of course. And it opens us to wisdom and everyday kindness. So many of the things that we're wanting, we use our everyday egoistic expressions to try to get, and in the process, block them. But if we can set them down, even though it's anxiety producing in the beginning, and it seems like not the right way to go, we can soften our grip on what we cling to in the face of our vulnerability and fear. So I hope this is somewhat clear that we tend to come to practice as if we're gonna get something new and be better at coping, when actually we have to set down our coping strategies in a certain way to open to something that we don't really clearly understand, but the teachings can point to, that maybe our teachers and spiritual friends can manifest for us and we can start to gain some confidence in, in something different. And there are a couple of spiritual workarounds that, that most of us have come to in our life. Uh, one of the common ones is to give in or give over to someone or something else in a very childish way. Um, I don't mean the, um, for example, in the 12-step program to realizing that you're somewhat powerless and you offer yourself up to side. There's a mature way of realizing that we can't do this alone. <clears throat> and there, that's a mature surrender, not an immature submission that we sometimes see in classical worship. And I'm not saying there's a problem with worship, but sometimes there are ways in which it is, is um, giving up of our responsibility and we know that. So that's sort of the, the childish way, but there's a very mature way to realize that we can't do it alone and we have to call on much more. And that we call that taking refuge, of course. 
Another one is like getting tough by being broken down and then rebuilt. This is kind of a military model. It reminds me of my dad talking about being in um, boot camp in the Marines at Camp Pendleton. And he saw it as something challenging and wonderful, kind of a male perspective. It was just terrifying to me. But And if you think of uh, the monastic training in Far East Asia, um, a little historical note, it, it's interesting to think that these strong, stringent techniques that we hear about that are a little harsh were an attempt to manage adolescent boys who are coming to the monastery, just like you, young military. It's, this is not what we're talking about in our practice. Not either being a child, submitting to a higher authority in an immature way, or trying to toughen ourselves up um, by crushing the ego and dying on the cushion, these things that sound so horrible. It has nothing to do with that. But we do have to meet our clinging, our grasping, our attempt to become something that we can't become. And in the process, create our suffering. Most of our practice is surrender or relinquishment with some faith that there's something that we rest in as we surrender our personal preferences and relinquish what we think. Ultimately, all of this is a form of concession. What is it that we concede in practice? Well, the self-centered dream we concede our preferences. When we're asked to walk into the Zendo, follow a schedule in a retreat, engage in the forms, this isn't a kind of a strange submission to an Asian way of doing things. It's offering ourselves practices so that we can concede our preferences and make space for realizing really who and what we really are what this life is, when we begin to set down all of our preferences, something else comes. We also concede our habits. We agree to follow what is requested as forms of mindful attention and not operating on automatic pilot, which are mostly our defenses and our protector parts. So we concede our habits and realize how they come forward, what they get us or don't get us. In some ways, we're conceding our body. We're asked to sit in a certain posture, in stillness and silence. We offer our body in the zendo to our cushion and our place. And we begin to feel that our consciousness and our embodiment are not separate. And we open to something much, much larger, deeper, sweeter, more profound. We have a concession of our beliefs. We begin to realize, um, well, we begin to really release in some ways our beliefs. And can we do that? The real question is, can we release our beliefs without immediately substituting new beliefs that we think are better? I'll let go of this as long as I have that. When we clutch at certainty, in a way to try to work with this endless contingent flow experience that's um, always in flux. It's like treading water fearfully in the sea, which will support us if we relax, we'll float. Struggling, struggling in a medium that would actually support us if we concede. And we concede our views. We release every personal view and perspective at least examine it, turn it over. This is what we call don't know mind or sometimes beginner's mind. As we take on and release every view and realize they're all provisional, of course we take these views, but there's nothing, there's no particular view that we can cling to and say, now nah, I've got it. Then we start creating the beliefs. And one of our other concessions is time. We follow schedules, we arrive on time, 
we end on time, we sit until the bell rings, we take time. And releasing um, doing for a while and soften our enslavement to time, all of these concessions of our preferences, of our habits, even of our body and beliefs, our views and ideas about time, lead us to really what I would call humility. And this is softening the self-centered dream, releasing self-centered thoughts. Abraham Lincoln once said, I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for that day. I've been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. This kind of concession to the moment. And then he says, my own wisdom and all that about me seemed insufficient for that day. And he doesn't say he turns to despair, he turns to humility. Doesn't say he turns to fight. He concedes and stays put in his practice, in his wholesomeness, in his willingness. Because humility is the fruit of such a practice and concession such a clear pathway to humility, I thought it was worth just saying a few more things about humility uh, before we talk among ourselves. And I would like to uh, reflect on something that I've offered in retreat before but I know there are a number of you who haven't heard this and it's, it's really powerful stuff. It's very much an expression of all that our practice offers us framed in a somewhat psychological or scientific way that comes from the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin in Madison where Richie Davidson is such a, a famous uh, researcher and head of this research. And, this particular work is done by one of the uh, senior graduate students there, uh, Pelin Kezebir. Um, just listen to these words and see if this isn't a beautiful reflection of what we hope our practice would bring us and what gives us the ground for uh, conceding these things which we must concede. And by the way, there's a book entitled Humility, which being um, published by Oxford University Press about this research. She said, um, the definition of humility is the ability to see oneself in true perspective and be at peace with it. To actually see yourself like we do in confession. And now fully avow, this is me, to see oneself and to be at peace with it. To accept, this is, this is me. It's interesting that the word humility, you know, the root of the word in Latin is humus, which is earth or soil. And so humility seems like the, the soil or the ground out of which well-being, out of which freedom can grow. The research suggests that people who are mature enough to feel humility harbor neither, they said, an exaggeratedly high nor an exaggeratedly low sense of self-importance. Self-importance isn't important. <laughs> they write, humble people are able to tolerate an honest look at themselves and non-defensively accept their weaknesses along with their strengths. This untroubled, serene, secure relationship to oneself diminishes the need to constantly monitor and defends one's self-worth. Constantly monitor and defend one's self-worth, bringing about freedom from a never-ending and exhausting tendency to compare oneself with others. 
And this comparing mind and competition and exaggerated sense of perfectionism are all things that erode this capacity for humility, which brings us into the kind of untroubled, serene, secure relationship that we seek. They go on to say that this lower focus on the self means that one's happiness is less conditional and more enduring as it's less tied to the triumphs and tribulations of the ego. So it's easier to concede to our nature, our true nature. And we also relate to others more healthily with the cultivation of humility. Since humble people do not exaggerate the meaning of the differences from others. It's not that we don't see differences when there clearly are differences at times, but we don't exaggerate the meaning of the difference with other people. They don't view themselves as superior or inferior to others as a whole. And they write, for one, humble people are less likely to alienate others and create interpersonal friction through toxic qualities such as selfishness, entitlement, or contempt. Beyond that, being free from exaggerated concerns about what other people signify for their own self-worth, humble people are able to approach others with more openness, ease, and benevolence. Later in the research, she talks about qualities that humble people seem to evidence, and they sound like the Brahma Viharas almost, or the, excuse me, the, the Paramitas in our, our tradition. She said helpfulness, generosity, gratitude, forgiveness, compassion, the things that we would expect. So there's a, a more serene and accepting relationship with self, a less contentious relationship with others when we're able to concede in this way to humility. And then our relationship with reality. If the ego's hopes and fears, if the self-centered dream, if our desires and aversions reign supreme, if that's what guides us, if this corrupts a person's ability to see things as they are. Each moment life as it is. They write, in contrast, humble people are less under the sway of their ego which affords them a less distorted look at reality and hence fewer unwelcome clashes with it. And humble people can more easily see their small place in the larger context of existence. They're able to tolerate an honest look at themselves and non-defensively accept their weaknesses alongside their strengths. In other words, they're able to enter the fiercely generous and profoundly humbling practice of concession. This fiercely generous and profoundly humbling practice of conceding. So I thought it was worth reflecting on these qualities of maturity that open through our practice. But rather than a practice that says, if I do this, I'm going to get some great spiritual thing. I'm going to have to question everything. And it, with the supporting care of others, I can do such a vulnerable thing and possibly open to what's well beyond my ideas about freedom. But it requires us to uh, concede in these ways and open to humility. Maybe this has brought some questions about your own practice. What is um, maybe some barriers to your own opening, to your own conceding? And if there are ways in which um, we might meet some of those, then raise your hand. And we'll see how the practice opens between us. how humility is uh, the fruit of such uh, connection.
Hi, Flint. Hey, Liz. It's nice to see you. I've seen you in a few weeks. Um, so I love this topic because I was I was wanting to reach out to you about this kind of distinction around conceding versus denial or pushing mm -hmm. away. Because I've been experimenting with this, I, you know, this is my first real presidential presidential election participation. I felt very moved to get involved and become less ignorant around our system and more participating in the, my feeling of devotion and care for all of us, mm -hmm. you know, in participating. And I got really carried away with that to the point where it wasn't feeling good anymore. And the election, I, I can't remember if it was election day or the week before where you were like, we have done all we can, now we wait. And I think that waiting period is something that we are still in. We are still in that waiting period and in that place of like, yes, this is all supposed to happen, but it's 2020 and who knows how, how it actually is gonna go. And I had this turning point where I had a, I was exposed to a TED talk by, forget them, I think it's Van Jones is his name, mm -hmm. around how our constitution is set up to where Trump really doesn't have to give it over. And I love that you're using the word concede because there's a lot of hot, it's a hot word right now. That's why I chose it. Yes, I figured. But without the particularities, I mean, and it, it scared the crap out of me. And I, I just was like, okay, there, there was that part of me that was very protective of myself that, that stood up and said, okay, enough is enough with the social media, with the research, with always having to be in the know, with having to look for more knowledge. You know, it was like, okay, Lizzie, like enough, let's, step back from all this. So I really, I got off social media. I stopped looking at the news. I was like, I told Mark, I said, I know you're going to stay on the pulse of this, but I need, a, I need a minute. Well, that's the grasping and the clinging that causes the suffering. And you were very clear about that. It wasn't a wholesome way of moving in the direction that you had been called to, but then it became, once again, it began to close down. Yes. And it was this clinging to knowing. Mm-hmm. And somehow knowing is control. That's the illusion. Right. And, and that is an old pattern. That's an old pattern of mine. So I was, I was actually really grateful that I was able to identify that it was creating suffering. But then there's this other tricky thing around, okay, so am I hiding? Am I pretending? That would be, another, that would be another ditch. Okay. So that's really what I want to get clear on with you. Right. Is, Clinging is one ditch. Aversion is the other. Right. What's the middle way? Right. Which is meeting life as it is. But that's the harder one because you have to stay with your vulnerability and the sense of uh, helplessness and still act and still be present, both for self and others. Right. That's what practice and that's what um, Isanga relationships make possible. It's easy to get involved in all the, the fights, the clinging. And it's easy to push away and hide because those we go back and forth and bouncing back and forth is what we see mostly. And that's a profoundly dualistic and quite painful. Uh, but in the middle, the middle way is, is harder because we have to concede to both of those things and bring ourselves into a space of, I, I don't know. It's like, you're like Lincoln brought to your knees and nobody's gonna be able to help you because everything you have isn't gonna fix the moment. And we still have to stay there. Yeah. And I'm feeling my capacity to be there. But I just wanted to dialogue with you a little bit about the aversion piece. That's helpful for you to say yeah. that it's really the two polarities. And you've also taught us that the middle way is a very broad. Yeah, it, it means that it we can it. see that we have both of those and that we're going to go there sometimes because if we avoid it, we're not going to be very good at steering. When we talk about the Buddhist teachings about greed, hate, and delusion, he's talking about the clinging, the aversion, and the way of just sort of going offline, <laughs> delusion, 
or distorting things. And that's kind of a third one that's just kind of the la la la, I'm not gonna pay attention to this, um, not so much the active aversion and pushing away. And we know all of those and it's really good to become familiar with them because otherwise you don't know when your wheel goes off the edge and you're about to be pulled into the ditch or you need to be aversion, aversion is where I had gone before for all the yeah. other presidential elections. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I live in Texas. My vote doesn't matter. Who cares? Yeah. You know, I mean, that was my excuse. Sure. And then you went to clinging. Completely. I went to the other side. Right. And now not atypical for me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I didn't want to beat myself up by swaying back in the aversion route yeah. because my mm -hmm. nervous system needed a minute. You know. And that's also why I mentioned Joanna Macy says, normally we try to explain, predict, and control. And all those are just uh, different voices for clinging as if we could manage reality in a certain way. It's not that we're not in charge of our lives and not that we shouldn't be responsible, but if we have a small enough view, we could make it go our way. And that just rips us apart. Mm -hmm. So we have to concede. I also wanted to just quickly mention, I'm watching this show called The Vow. It's the Nexium cult, um, the, what, oh my gosh, it's, it's amazing. It's very compelling. And I just really appreciate the, the purity really of, of our practice and of our, this Sangha in particular, because there's no doubt. I have no doubt around not being able to trust mm -hmm you and Peg as holders of this, you know, and the guy is talk about someone when you were talking about humility, I was watching him last night. And the one we were watching last night, it's like, this guy's too humble. He's not humble. He's playing like he's humble. Yep. It's amazing how cunning some of the spiritual communities can be. And I've been a part of them in the past. And so it's just, I wanted to thank you and Peg for, well, for that. Uh, our capacity to uh, detect these things that are off is actually increased as we become more aware, not as a way of being critical or harsh. Um, apamata, the word apamata has, one of the definitions has to do with the protective quality of the mind because we notice what's harmful or unwholesome. And so we, uh, technically speaking, we get a better crap detector. Right, exactly. <laughs> so anyway. Thanks, Liz. Thank you, Flint. Yeah. Nice to see you. Hello, John. Hi, Flint. Um, as I was hearing you, uh, it seemed to me like this is such a struggle. And so I'm wondering, you know, if the fact that I have to struggle is really where it's at. Um, but something uh, that felt like not a struggle when I was in India, uh, working, volunteering at Mother Teresa's organization along with my sons. Every once in a while, I would look in the mirror and I'd feel okay about what I saw. Mm -hmm. And that, when I think about that, that does not seem like a struggle at all. And so I guess you have to work at this, but I don't know. It's the kind of work, John, that, um... You've heard me say so often, how simple are you willing to let this be? It's a kind of work that involves mostly letting go of things, not a work to gain new things. When you just simply walked by a mirror and looked at yourself and liked okay what you saw, you know, I imagine that if you're working in Mother Teresa's organization, you're probably not focused on yourself very much. You're focused on what's in front of you, what you need to do. Okay. That um, uh, humility doesn't mean we think less of ourselves. We just think less about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then we can open up to the simplicity of just accepting what's here. Our capacity to be with ourselves and others without too much evaluation. And so all the struggles, everything that isn't like that does come up, you're right. And that is what feels like the struggle. So when in doubt, soften your grip on those things and return to something simple and present and embodied. That's why we have Zazen and the kind of practices we do. 
Yeah. So it sounds like you get a little, you know, you get to thinking about it a little much, you know. Yeah. So I guess what's needed is to is to think about these things, you know, try to focus on that. But then uh, it doesn't have to feel like a struggle. Yeah. Right, right. Just notice that those things arise and let them move and, and stay focused on what's in front of you. I felt the same thing when I was in Japan, uh, living in a monastery for a while. And at one point I was walking across one of the great halls in the, uh, in the, the Buddha hall and I realized my next joyful thought was, what's next? What do I need to do? What's the job? And I wasn't thinking about myself or whether I was happy or unhappy. Mm -hmm. or whether I was in the right place. I didn't have any of those self-reflective thoughts much and it was then I reflected on that and it was such a surprise it's like oh it's a little easier just to move with life that's in front of me that I'm always thinking about myself it takes away some of the struggle okay okay thanks yeah yeah it's good to see you mm -hmm. you too Oh my God. <laughs> oh, you just made my day. <laughs> uh, I you. A <laughs> um, couple of things come up. Yeah, first of all, I love that analogy of the treading water and instead of um, floating and recognizing the support that's there. Um, I was thinking as you talk about conceding and concession and humility, I was thinking about how much both of those are embodied. You know me, that's my yeah, exactly. bias. And um, I, maybe you could say a bit more about, I, there's a way that I, I am recognizing that uh, both the attachment to ego that gets in the way of humility um, and, and the two ditches, you know, the aversion mm -hmm. and the clinging, they're, they're embodied experiences. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you can feel it in yourself, right? And, mm -hmm. and in some kind of tension patterns probably, and, but also in our um, habitual way of holding ourselves right and um, I th this is somehow connected with the question that comes up for me is the paradox of of acceptance on the one hand and surrendering and concession yes because mm -hmm. they, they they go together one of the mm -hmm. things that I did and maybe I didn't make it as clear when I talked about relinquishing we'll use that word too our yeah. habit, uh, our preferences, uh, all these things that are automatic. We only know them because we sit still for a while in meditation and we begin to feel the impulses. Mm -hmm. And as you and I teach, we turn down the noise so we can feel those subtle signals that we may not feel and realize, oh, this is all happening in our body. That's the only place it can happen. Yeah. And as we pay attention and, and with each other, help each other, and listen to each other and reflect each other. We feel not only that in our own body, but we feel the impact of the other and the habits that come there too. And I think I missed your question now. There's something well, else you're asking. The, the, yeah, the, just this paradox of, um, you know, I had a teacher that used to say, surrender to serenity. Mm -hmm. And, um, Oh, and so, I, so. There's something about letting go, you know, the, um, the challenge, you know, the invitation to concede, to let go, to relinquish on the, on the one hand. And um, the confusion I think some of us have around um, stopping the struggle and, and moving into acceptance. And there's a way they both mean the same thing, but I'd love to hear you talk about it a bit more. Well, you know, when I was thinking about this, I looked up surrender, submission, and concession, and looked at the definitions and the synonyms and the antonyms and how they get tangled up. 
So if I, I can surrender this by putting it down, mm -hmm. I've given it up, but I can also surrender it by just opening my hand mm -hmm. and accepting and holding it and looking at it and examining it and learning about it and accepting that this is here. To cling to it as a problem, to toss it away might yeah. be a problem, but to just hold it. So in our um, confession and repentance chant, we do when we say all our ancient twisted karma from beginning, you know, I now fully avow. Mm -hmm. It's like, I now accept, yeah, this, this is me. And this is the way that I meet myself. Then you have some choice. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that you teach. If you know what you're doing, then you can know more what you want to do. You have some more choice available. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, what you're helping me understand is the need for some quality of acceptance, which requires consciousness in order to be able to surrender. Yes, yeah. 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 And a surrender is so close to trying to push away or fix or change. Yeah. And it, and it isn't. It's a very subtle thing that takes time. Yeah. It's almost more like uh, letting something fall away <laughs> because it's exactly. ready to. Yeah. Exactly. And, and the translation of the teachings from Dogen in the 12th century, it's a little bit like Patanjali, I think, uh, in, in the Zen tradition where he says, body and mind of themselves drop away. It, it drops away you don't but 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 it's not on its own. you have to practice but the practice allows that to then drop away and you realize something that you couldn't have realized otherwise mm -hmm. yeah that's that gets it clearer for me because it brings it to my understanding of of what yoga practice is it's not doing something it's undoing and it's, it's yeah, letting and that's go. where I started today. You know, this really yeah. isn't about getting something, it's about letting some things go. That's uh, right. Yeah. yeah, 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 that's great. And one of the um, clingings I have is you. <laughs> I miss you. Uh. <laughs> In the last uh, 25 years, this is the longest we've not seen each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or been in the same place. That's right. Yeah. Together. I, I miss you too. And I'm glad you're showing up this way so I can connect. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're showing up this way too. Thank you for your teaching. Thank you. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know Donna Martin, she and I have taught together both as Hakomi uh, trainers and also here in Hawaii at Hui Holana for the last 20 years or more. Um, just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful woman and great teacher. Hello, Napa. I think you're muted still. Not anymore. Not anymore. There you go. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing really well. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. So what a perfect person to precede me in asking you to elaborate more because um, I don't know that my recent experience is unique, but I've not heard it so far. And so I'd like to ask you to elaborate if you can. And, and my experience of surrendering into serenity usually brings with it grief. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, well, will you speak to that more? Sure, sure. It's not an uncommon thing. I certainly have experienced it. Um, <clears throat> my, my, I'll, I'll explain, or I'll say what my experience is, and you tell me if it resonates with yours. Okay. Um, and it's interesting as I think about saying something that I make this gesture. No. Oh. Because it's a movement to my, to my heart. When I begin to um, surrender into serenity, as you said, as I let myself relax and rest in the present moment into that kind of samadhi i'm going to meet what's ever whatever is present when i <clears throat> when i say i'm going to relax or surrender to serenity it doesn't mean i'm going to relax and surrender into some pleasant 
untroubled state. There's a serenity of meeting whatever is there. That may sound odd. I was asking this question one time of Ron Kurtz, so it's appropriate that we just talked to Donna. And I said, why is it that sometimes when we open to these beautiful places of relief and release, and we really make that turn with our whole body and a whole heart, that we find ourselves crying and many, many kind of things that don't look like ease and love are moving in us, even though that's what's happening. He said, you know, the opening through which the love finally goes in is the same opening through which the pain comes out. Now I'm touching my heart. Yeah, and that's what you're talking about, I think. Thank you. Yes. And so they go together in this way that feels odd, but it's really just human. Good to know I am. <laughs> I, Thank and you. I, I see you and I hear you. And I feel you. Thank you, Flint. Thank you. A one-handed bow because I'm holding my iPhone. Yes, I understand how that goes. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. There you are. We're connected. Hi, Flint. Uh, well, this was a good topic today, and it brought back a lot of, of memories, thinking about being humble and those kinds of things, and, and what was taught to me about being humble. And see, I go like this, being humble. Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> they, they didn't jive. They didn't jive. That's right. I was taught the same stuff, especially at church, but didn't really seem... I didn't see it being enacted in a way that looked real. No. And um, so there are things about myself that, you know, I've always just kind of brushed aside. But I was have a friend who was celebrating an 80th birthday and her kids ask that I make a video. Well, what's worse than a video of yourself? And so I planned it out, I made the video, and then I made myself watch it to see if I could send it. And I felt like I was in the moment, both making this video, but more astonishingly was watching it mm -hmm. because I was th not thinking about the maker. I was thinking about my friend mm -hmm. as I watched it. And I suddenly said, I want to be this woman's friend. Now, that was a sort of this, I mean, that is not humble. <laughs> but I think actually, it was. Actually, it's precisely what Donna was talking about. I think it was humble. It's the surrender to all of the ideas you have about yourself so that you actually meet yourself. It, I mean, I just, I don't have a question. I just needed to share that with you because, right. I mean, I... That was, was non-egocentric. It wasn't yeah. an egocentric elevation, was it? No, it wasn't. And I can't remember. It's been a long time since I've had a, a real... It was kind of an awakening. Yes. That. And I have a good friend and I thought, well, I'll tell her about it. And I was kind of, and, but I could tell her about it and I didn't feel, I didn't feel bad telling her. And in the old times, I certainly would have. Well, and now, so you're doing this on video with a whole bunch of people all over the world. I know. <laughs> well, I want them to have the same experience because it really was something, you know, it's, I don't, I don't want to say it felt good. I mean, it did, but it was, it was the freeing quality. Exactly. Exactly. That's what in the, in the loving presence training, we talk about non-egocentric nourishment. It sounds a little fancy, but it's a kind of a, a yeah. nourishment. 
it isn't about supporting your ego it's mm -hmm. opening yeah it was a, it was an opening and and i really didn't think i'd probably ever have one of those so well, there you I'm, are i'm delighted to share it with you thank you very thank much you. for the topic yeah that's been one of the challenges of my myself um doing this all the time uh with folks and having to see myself and listen to myself move to that acceptance that donna was talking about and not just a forced assent not just conceding but actually a warm intimacy if anybody wants to go look i'm i don't have time for it now you might look at Derek Walcott's poem, Love After Love. It's, just, it's easy to find, Love After Love by Derek Walcott. And it speaks to this very turn and this invitation of profound acceptance, uh, which comes when we concede all the other things that we wish and hope and fear that become um, uh, barriers in the way to a profound acceptance of this body and this life at this time. When we chant the verse of the robe now to complete our time, the, um, you see that the verse really speaks to this opening and releasing in an embodied way, because it's about wearing, it's about taking on our body this space when we've conceded all the other smaller spaces we try to fit ourselves into so let's chant that together vast is the robe of liberation a formless field of benefaction wearing the universal teaching i realize the one true nature thus harmonizing all being Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. It's a wonderful day to be with all of you. And if you'd like to hang out and uh, speak to some of your friends, then you might move to the next uh, uh, meeting in just a moment. Jessica will uh, finish us up here and uh, lead you in that direction. And thank you for your support. Thank you so much, Clint, and thank you, everyone. Appamata's programs and facilities are supported by your generosity, and your support makes such a difference. So thank you all so much. You may make a donation or contribution online through appamata.org, and there are contribution forms there for teachers uh, or for Appamata itself. And as Flint mentioned, there is an after-inquiry meeting, which I believe that um, will be happening right now. You can find the link on the calendar, on the main calendar, appamata.org. Thank you.